namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa namo tassa pakavato arahato sama samputassa uttang dhammang sankhang namasami so for those of you who don't know me my name is Vera Dhammo and I live in the western paradise over there I live in the land of the Samanas who delight in the cooking of others. That's <laughs> our realm. As you can see, I'm having a great time. <laughs> so I haven't given a talk for a while, thanks to Ajahn Sachito's lovely presence here and uh, Ajahn Chunda. So I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be on my own. This is very rare for me, very, very rare. Today is uh, Magha Puja, the full moon of February, and halfway through this winter retreat. Magha Puja, I think, as Ajahn Chanda has been saying, is, is, uh, his historical significance is quite deep in the texts, and it's the day we, sometimes we call it Sangha Day. So we have, I guess it's a kind of Western invention, I suspect, we have Buddha Day, Zaysak, the uh, full moon of May, the, where we com- uh, remember the birth, enlightenment, and parinibbana of the Buddha. And then we have um, Magha Puja, which is today, which you remember the Sangha, so Sangha Day, and then Dhamma Day is the Sala Puja, the first teaching full moon of July. And those are kind of significant markers in our in our yearly calendar, days of reflection, days of celebration. These are very helpful as a, uh, as a community and as a religion, really. even though we don't like that word, to have, to have days where we remember our good fortune, our very good fortune to have a, have a teaching, to have a heritage, to have um, uh, a body of people who have done this kind of lifestyle work and um, aspiration for 2,500 years. And when you reflect on that, it's, it's, uh, I, do, I find it terribly inspiring, uh, very uplifting, and uh, in some sense um, connecting, because it's not just about me struggling or rejoicing with my own inner Work. It's something that has been done before. And there is a, there is success. There is a support for this kind of lifestyle. Um, there are uh, heroic examples of people who have done this. Lay people, monastic people. Mm-hmm. So if you've been to Bodh Gaya, you, you get a sense of the strength and diversity of this uh, Buddhist Sangha, of this Buddhist. Uh, worldwide community that celebrates the life of the Buddha and aspires to Buddhist values in different ways, in different cultural ways, with different types of chanting and uh, different ways of bowing and different colors of robes and different ways of relating for lay people to monastics, but all rather wonderful. If you go to Bodhgaya, you, you see that. 
or if you go to the, one of the big gatherings that uh, we just occurred at Wat Bapong where the uh, Ajahn Chah lineage of monastics gather, you see over a thousand monks and, and tens of thousands of lay people there. Uh, or if you go to the gatherings in May, which many of you will go, in, our Sangha will go to in England, we see the uh, foreign monasteries coming together and many, many um, monks and lay people and, and nuns in, in that subset of Sangha. So these are the ways which are, are uh, uplifting for me to be a part of. And then the kind of friendships that evolve. So this good friendship I have with Ajahn Sachito is really extraordinary, very extraordinary. So this is the, the result of living Sangha life for, for many years. There are many, many benefits. Um, but uh, I'd like to reflect more maybe on, on the kind of the local Sangha that really defines a, a Sangha which is a residential community because that's where the major lifestyle of Sangha has to take place. It doesn't take place in an abstract. And certainly we have abstracts like the Arya Sangha, the Sangha of noble uh, attained lay men and lay women and monks and nuns. And then, so you have the bhikkhuni sangha, bhikkhu sangha, so you have these different, more abstract ways of talking about sangha, or you just have the Pali formula, group, uh, and so on and so forth. But, but really, I think what is important in to, to, to understand how to do it, actually, how to live in sangha, how to be sangha, huh? and, and that's what we are doing during this winter retreat. We are, we are living sangha, we are living that, Refuge. Uh, Ajahn Chunda likes to read from a book called uh, the, "The Day Begins Now." Or how, how is it? <laughs> <laughs> Beginning our day. Beginning our day. Sorry, for this so many times again. And on the cover of that, you, you'll have a, you have a uh, a series of colored stones, which are I think kind of dulled, and on the back they're sort of embossed in a colored in in a in a shiny way. And that comes from an image of um, the way they polish uh, semi-precious stones by putting the stones into a container and then see the centrifugal force, I think, spins around. The, the stones uh, rub against each other and you have a beautiful polished stone. And that's one of the metaphors that's sometimes used in for Sangha life. Personally, I don't like it. <laughs> Because I'm more like a peach. You know, I'm not really a rock. <laughs> and if you put me in a grinder, I become pulp. So I can, you know, I, I do see the point of it. Because, but if that was the only metaphor we had, of course, then, then monasticism would be a grind. <laughs> Literally. And, and so metaphors work a little bit, right? They're not absolute. So you can see what the other... And I can certainly see where in my life as a monk, I've had times where, you know, life has kind of ground down my arrogance and ground down my conceits and so on. So it's, it, it, it is applicable. But, but I, I, I prefer more kind of organic metaphors because, you know, I'm, I relate to a more complex uh, self-nature than, than, than uh, just inner rock. <laughs> So the metaphors that we sometimes see in, in, in Buddhist practice are 
are, are metaphors like, like, uh, like the word cultivation rather than practice. Practice is, a, I think, is a very word we use a lot and it's just sort of custom, but I think the, the imagery that comes to my mind is more like organic cultivation. So Sangha, for me, then, is, is a local Sangha. It's a here and now Sangha. Uh, it's geographically located. It's located within the water and the trees, the roads, the birds, the deer, the humans, the neighbors, the air quality, the um, seasons, and so on and so forth of this place. So it's situated in place. So it's like like a uh, a farm or an orchard that has its you know sangha is the orchard, the orchardists or the farmers, and and the and the crop too. It's all of that, you know. It, it's, a, it's an organic thing, and we are organic as humans within that. We are multidimensional. We have a lot of facets. We have we're complex. We have energy bodies. We have emotional bodies. We have memories. We have thought. We have analysis. We have gender. Da 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 da. da. So it's it's a much more complex thing than just being ground down, and and that that complexity has in it those you know passive elements of sort of enduring and and wearing out things. So that certainly is uh, is a part of it, and and but I, I think it's it's important to remember that uh, the the point of of, uh, of an organic formation in nature is to thrive right? that's why that's why things are born into nature they're born to thrive they're not born to die you know their energy is to thrive and so I think that kind of consideration is important how does how does the organic formation called Sangha how does it thrive and how do we as organic formations thrive within that well one way it won't thrive is if we just do our own thing all the time will thrive. And from what I've heard from Anjan Chunda, that this retreat has been excellent. You know, people have been really uh, excellent in, in, in upholding our values and, and uh, working in cooperation and so on and so forth. Not perfect, but it's never perfect. But, you know, this is a kind of, for me, from my limited viewpoint from the Western paradise, you know, you know next door to me, there's people always standing around. You notice that? <laughs> Every afternoon they're just standing there. I can't think what they're doing. Anyway, I do real lying meditation. I do the real stuff. <laughs> so thriving is something we don't talk about much in Sangha. You know, we talk more about like cessation. We talk about ending. Um, and yet, as organic beings, uh, if we don't have, if we don't thrive, we die. We just die. Our hearts die. We just go all blank. So if, if this if this Sangha life was just one of enduring and and kind of bearing witness, and if it was one where my participation in Sangha life was where I'm just trying to I'll do my minimum and I'll get away and I'll do my bit and I'll get away, then that would, there wouldn't be a Sangha, it would be a rental. It would be like a retreat center. And a retreat center is like a rental. You rent a retreat center, do your practice, do whatever chores you have to do and you get away. And that's a, that's a common problem in Western monasticism because the, the capacity to actually bring people together and hold them together and have a commitment to be together 
is always being undermined by the tendency uh, of not wanting to be hassled, wanting to be a hermit, wanting to get away from the person that causes me friction. So that atomization of Sangha life is, is, is very, very common. So what, what makes the Sangha thrive is a willingness for a group to participate in Sangha life, not just individual solitary life. And yet what also makes a, a Sangha thrive is the capacity to develop individual life. Uh, the capacity to develop uh, a sense of being, being alone and being skillful in being alone. Both are important. I was talking to a, a friend from New Zealand, who, an elderly friend who is, whose daughter works for UNHCR. And she's worked in South Sudan, she's worked in Afghanistan, she's worked in Pakistan. So lately she had been in Afghanistan, now she's been posted to Syria. And just the thought of that, just the thought of someone actually going to Syria to try to help there, is both shocking, you know, in, in terms of what a person was going to see there, but also her life is very, very inspiring. She loves doing it. She loves doing it. This is her life. She's, she's a very gifted woman. She has nine languages, tiny person. And I think she will be the second in charge of UNHCR in Syria. She's having difficulty getting in, into Syria right now because of passports or visas or something like that. Uh, and she really wants to go. Now that kind of altruism and, and uh, what we might say self-sacrifice or selflessness is some, something that we don't talk about in our Sangha, do we? It's like self-sacrifice, selflessness, or, you know, these are, or you know, altruism, these are things that aren't, like how many times have you heard the word self-sacrifice in a desana in the last five years? Not often. We, don't, we usually talk that way. We, we usually talk about my practice, which is, is okay. Uh, but what is, is there a place for that in our life? Is there a place for service? And there is, because we, we get joy from that. We get joy from that. Sometimes like the word altruism itself, can, or self-sacrifice, can be like, I'll throw myself on a grenade so my, my companions don't die, and I die for them. Well, that would not be the path to enlightenment. So there has to be some self-concern. There has to be some self you have to take care of yourself. But if there is no other principle than just my practice, then I think you don't really have an organism. You have kind of individuated, atomized beings who come together as little as possible and disappear into their space to do their practice. And that's a common, common problem, but I don't see that as a problem here. I see this is why it's a such an inspiring time, I think, for our, our Sangha, because there's something about our coming together right now which isn't maybe hung up on that so much. Well, it is a time of retreat, so we'll see after the retreat how, how we come together and how well we do that. But what, what would make the organism of Sangha um, healthy should also somehow serve the organism of individual. And one of the things that makes it healthy is cooperation. And the cooperation is, is something that can be learned. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's like a craft, it's like a craft that, that it doesn't just come on its own. Because 
We all have a different take on life, and yet we have a common take on life. We have, we have a kind of common aspiration for the freedom from suffering, and yet we come from different backgrounds and we have different defilements which are arising within this context. And so we, we face uh, each other in ways which are sometimes complementary, but sometimes not. Sometimes uh, we are in, in conflict with each other. Yeah? And being able to negotiate all of that, being able to feel tension, uh, being able to be with tension, and somehow negotiate that in, in terms of cooperation is a, is a skill that, that is part of Sangha life. If we don't develop that skill, and we just run away from friction or conflict uh, to run away, then we remain rather childish and, and, and adolescent. If we're also always in the need to say, well, how are you feeling? I don't know how you're feeling. You, you looked funny at me. They're always needing to inform each other about our feelings. That's also rather childish. But, but cooperation is something which is done through the needs of the Sangha, through the needs of this place. So the needs of this place help us to somehow be less selfish and more able to give up to something bigger than ourselves. And that gives joy. That gives a good result. So uh, Ajahn Chunda says to me uh, at the beginning of this retreat, Bhante, I'd like to offer you uh, uh, a month on your own. I said, really? You did that for me last year? Yeah. I'll do it for you this year. Oh, really? Oh, thank you. Now that is nourishing for me, nourishing for Ajahn Chunda, he has a chance to test himself in the leadership position, to teach, to look at, you know, the fears and anxieties that you get in the leadership position, and he learns from that. And that's not that's not a grinding, is it? You know, it's not a grinding. It's a it's a it's a flourishing. It's a flourishing of the heart. It's a flourishing of intention. It's a flourishing which comes from a, a lovely place of generosity and kindness and self-challenging. And, and, and on my part, I feel. Oh, thank you. Really nice. Really nice. And Ajahn Sachita supports me. Everyone else supports me. Oh, let the old guy just hang out and carve things. Mm-hmm. And I say, oh, thank you. And that makes me feel good, right? And that's a nourishing thing. And if we didn't have that, if it was just like dealing with each other's friction, you know, if we were always in friction all the time, you'd, we would have to run away to our kutis. But there is this kind of flourishing part of our life, too. This really uh, uh, beautiful, caring part of our life. Sometimes uh, I'm, in a bad, I'm in bad shape and, and you're in good shape, then you carry my tension. Sometimes you're in bad shape, I'm in good shape, I carry your tension. We cooperate with each other. And cooperation, what does that require? It's like a conversation, and a conversation requires observation. Listening. We have to listen, don't we? If I just want to assert my ideas on you, that's not listening. That's not a conversation. That's imposition. So there's obedience, sure, we have that in, in Sangha life. There is a sense of obedience and we have a hierarchy, but it can't just be that. Just I'm going to obey all the time. It has to be something, because I don't think obedience in itself is going to be that, going to be helpful in terms of function, but it's not, I don't think it's going to nourish the heart all that much. Whereas cooperation is a much more difficult and interesting, interesting thing to do because I have to take into account your sensitivities, but also I have to present my sensitivities. You know, I, have to, I have to observe you. You can't have a good conversation if you can't observe. 
I have to observe you. But if I'm just obedient, I don't put forth my own point of view or whatever, then I just feel infantile. But if I just assert my view on you, then that doesn't work. So cooperation is an interesting way of actually uh, an organism flourishing, both individual and group. And that you can train to do that. You can develop social skills. We may not like each other, in general we do, but we may not like each other, but we can still, we can still learn to cooperate. I may not understand where you're coming from, but I can still learn to cooperate. So it's not like a, a need for me to get inside your head and uh, try to figure you out. That's different. That's, that's what a therapist does. But we're not doing therapy with each other. Hope not. Or if we are, then okay, that's all right too. But, but it, that, it's not like that. It's not like, uh, what do you feel about me? Do you, you know, when you looked at me yesterday and your eyes were cross-eyed, did, what were you saying to me? That's not cooperation. That's anxiety. There's <laughs> cooperation is, you know, I have a task. How can we do this together? How can we do this dance together? Oh yeah, you're, you're, obviously you're, I'm, and I'm serving you, and you're, wow, you're really in, okay, you're having a hard day. Okay, yeah, I'll adapt to that. I'll, I'll negotiate that. It was just 50-50, you know, you do this and I do that. Uh, you get four days, I get four days. You get five days, I get five days. If that was like that, then that's pretty harsh, right? It's not beautiful. But, oh, you, you, yeah, you, you're having a rough time. Go ahead. The rest, I'll take. And that kind of sharing and observing and, and communicating uh, is a flourishing. It's a flourishing of the individual because the individual is more generous and, and not just self, self-upset, self-concerned, can look, has the uh, capacity to look, and then respond from that, from that understanding. I've been trying to carve a Buddha head with marginal success, I've never done carving before, using wood. And I started with a, a piece of basswood, and I, I drew a 24-petaled a flower with compasses, a kind of mandala flower, very, very simple design, and I carved that. And that was uh, learning, learning how to sharpen gauges, gouges, and, and uh, shapes and, and uh, figure out how tools work and how wood works and how you cut across the grain with the grain against the grain what happens and so on and so that sense of observing and doing observing and doing observing and doing is like a conversation isn't it and we do that all the time when we learn something so now I've graduated <laughs> and now I'm trying to do a Buddha head so I have a, I have a model which is the Buddha head that was on the upper shelf of the uh, lay library there, that, that really beautiful, elegant one, gray colored. So I took that and I'm trying, I laminated a bunch of pine and you know, I've been hacking away at that. And I've never, I've never drawn, I don't know art, I like art, but I've never really drawn. So I look at this chunk of wood and I say, how the heck am I going to do that? Really, I know, okay, I know I got to reduce it. It's square now, but how am I going to do this? And so then I, you know, I read a bit online and so on, and then I just stop, I just start, and take a bit away, and take a bit away, and take a bit away. And then as I get the roughing out, then I begin to look at the model more clearly. Now I really pay attention, and, and I say, oh yeah, I've really got to get 
I got to get balance here. Those eyeballs are, oh, that nose is really, oh, my gosh. I start to see more. And I start to see more. And unfortunately, uh, I see more. I see everyone's noses now. <laughs> when I'm talking with people, I'm usually not talking to you, actually. I'm talking to a nose, an ear, or a mouth. <laughs> And, to tell you the truth, I think Nisanka has the best nose in Sangha. <laughs> Hemanta doesn't know that, but never mind. I have observed. <laughs> but it's very interesting, is the powers of observation become really acute. So much so that I noticed the back of Subijano's head is not symmetrical. <laughs> The right side of the back of his head is larger than the left side, as he was bowing today. He said the doctor noticed it too. I don't think he's hearing me. <laughs> anyway, what's this got to say? The Sangha is the power of observation, right? And as this project becomes more difficult now, I'm finding the lips are just so difficult to get the lips right. So, as I was saying to Everyone, I was saying, I, I either get Anjali Jolie or the Joker, <laughs> <laughs> this Batman Joker mode. That is so difficult to do. So, what, what does it require of me? It requires of me, I have to really look at that, the model I have, and I have to look at what have I done there and what do I have to do to it? And I see, oh yeah, faces have cheeks. I haven't put cheeks on this guy. <laughs> Or whatever, and the 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 what's really interesting is the focus now, you know, the observation, the then the attempt to rectify it, and the observation gets more and more interesting and more and more refined and more and more attentive, and then then the action is more and more like the, you know, the, the amount I have to take off the left side of the lip is like minuscule, and yet the eye is so trained to see what what lips look like or proportion look like. I've also discovered that I think I swallowed my lips. I don't have any. I look in a mirror, I think, my God, where are they going? So there's a lot of noticing there. <laughs> but is this not true? Is this not the way we also learn to cooperate? You know, like when, you're, when you come into a monastery, you come with people with different strengths and different weaknesses and different nationalities and different genders and da-da-da and all the rest of it. And, you know, it's not not going, you know, some people you really click with, but some you don't. And isn't it the ones that you don't click with that you really have to pay attention? You really have to observe what is, what is cooperation now? What would be needed for cooperation? And is not that, does that not make the organism healthy? And does not that make me healthy? Is that not conducive to thriving? Is that not conducive to flourishing? It is. It is. And and so the way we're you know we're taught that is through dana and see adana and 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 gratitude, you know? uh, and they become kind of passive words, you know, dana, yeah, okay, feed the monks kind of thing. But but what is it that impulse which is empathetic can observe and and relate and converse? and make adjustments, and talk, and talk about differences. We don't have to agree. I can, I can disagree with you, right? But that takes a lot of skill to listen to someone and to say, yeah, I hear you. I mean, I see it differently, but I hear you. 
I was talking with Ajahn Sito this morning, with trying, just trying to get my head around the difference between sympathy and empathy. And sympathy, what, you know, from what my conclusion was, sympathy is kind of saying, I feel your pain. Right? So, so someone's mother dies and say, yeah, I, I know, yeah, my mom died, I feel your pain. Whereas empathy, I was reading a writer like Richard Sennett, he was saying that empathy is a more difficult kind of way of relating, because empathy requires a kind of pausing, not necessarily agreeing, not necessarily agreeing, just, just kind of saying, okay, that's where you're at, yeah, I see where you're at. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then from that, being able to disagree. Uh, being able to say, yeah, I can see how you're having trouble with that person. Uh, yeah, yeah, but, you know, I, I, uh, I don't see it that way. And that, that is empathetic, but from that you can, you can build a conversation, right? If I just have to agree with you, or I just have to assert my, my opinion on top of you, and you feel, uh, or if I disagree with you, you feel very defensive, then there's no conversation, and there's no cooperation. But we can... I can I can hear you, I can hear you, and I can hear your opinion. Say, yeah, that's interesting. But uh, uh, I, maybe what if we look at it this way? And then, if you have the willingness to to feel the tension, then somehow you work out different viewpoints without arguing. You, know? you don't have to always agree. You don't always have to come to the same conclusion. And that human being is kind of difficult. You know, it's kind of either my way or no way, or either your way, if your way is always right. That's, that's, not, you know, that's not the case of a, a mature community. So dialogue, cooperation, obviously the, the things which make a, a monastery thrive or a sangha thrive are also uh, keeping the precepts. And we hear about, a lot about that, you know, kind of observe the, uh, observe the rules kind of thing. And we do that quite well. But... Um, Sometimes there isn't a richness there. You know, there isn't a richness of human heart because it's simply obedience. And I, you know, not, not that I'm advocating disobedience, I'm not saying that, but uh, just obeying the rules and, and kind of doing your bit and then uh, not participating, I don't think creates a healthy Sangha. Ajahn Sachito and I talked a lot about this, this these past mornings, how... Um, some of our times in Sangha life was like people would come, you know, like I'll, I'll, I'll do my bit, but I'm not really going to participate. And and they they aren't very healthy Sanghas. They're really healthy Sanghas because there's no real commitment to something bigger. Maybe that's one of the reasons we ask a person training in our system, Anagarikas, Samaneras, and Bhikkhus, for seven years to come and make a commitment. And what, and what, is, that, what is commitment? Right? Commitment is like getting beyond the kind of idea, this is a rental. And I'm just renting, that's all. I don't have to take care of this place. But actually, commitment requires a, a participation, a collaboration, a, a, a way of actually being in Sangha. You know, it's no longer like a retreat center. I come, I do my retreat, pay my money and leave. But rather, it's a participation with all the personalities, with all the elements of weather, with all the work and all the responsibilities, and somehow contributing to that and being a part of that and being connected to that. And, and this is flourishing. You, know, you feel connected to something because you've 
participated in its well-being, you, f- you flourish, don't you? You flourish, you feel good. Some of the models we have, the kind of iconic models of, of Theravada Buddhism, come from uh, like the forest monks, like a Jan Mun, living in the forest on their own, doing their practice, uh, you know, who are like these hero- heroic figures of solitude for decades on end. We don't live like that. It's a model we have, but none of us live like that. You know, we live like this, this kind of model. So if I hold that heroic image, where well, the real practice is in my kuti, right? That's where the real work is, and this other stuff, yeah, it's just social chit-chat, it's no good, really, no, it's not the real stuff. Well, yeah, but who's going to do it? Who's going to do sangha life? Who's going to relate? Who's going to uh, make this a healthy community of interactive adults and it's only us that can do that so that's one model we have of this kind of heroic sadhu in the forest fighting off lions and tigers and yet our life is not that and the other one is a kind of wandering tradition that we are wanderers right that's the Tudong tradition you go and you wander well we don't for the first seven years and actually, we don't that much in our whole monastic life. A few monks are wanderers, but mostly we actually live in stable situations. We live in monasteries with kutis and, and, and all, all the rest of it. And to kind of take a, take a different kind of a model where, where there is a sense of, uh, where, where sense of service is beautiful and flourishing, where a sense of, of mm, cooperation, uh, listening, uh, conversing, uh, the 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 hard kind of gra- that, that 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 kind of craft of human relationship, uh, making that very important as well as samadhi, as well as sitting cross-legged, as well as uh, sitting walking, sitting walking, sitting walking, making that equally important because you learn a lot. You learn a lot about yourself. There's some things we learn about in solitude, but there's some things we will never learn about in solitude. There's some things we learn in relationship. But some things we'll never learn in a relationship, and so that's the model of, of, of the of from Ajahn Chah tradition it is community, solitude within community, and and both both are, are very very important. Both are important. So those areas where in in relating to each other where there is tension, uh, where there is fear, uh, where there is resentment, where there is uh, jealousy, where there is Anxiety and all the rest of it, that those are the places of flourishing. It doesn't feel like flourishing, but those are the places we have to learn to to abide with and learn to be with human beings even in the midst of those things. And that those are the it's like the really difficult bit of trying to get the lips right or the nose right. You know, it's really very demanding. Demands your attention. It demands your 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 integrity, and yet because it demands your attention and demands your integrity and makes you look very very carefully, the rewards are great. It's like like the this face I'm doing. This it's very rewarding. In, I'm not going to sell it. That's for sure. <laughs> but in terms of the need to pay attention, the need to to have this conversation with a piece of wood and a model, creates a, a lovely kind of. Um, Energy, and that's very inspiring. It's not people. People are much more complex, and our emotions are much more complex. But I think the analogy holds that there is a place of 
of community as craft and, and, and human relationships as craft. And, and to think that somehow this is going to be easy is very naive. Well, the very difficulties uh, are to be made conscious rather than run away from and go off into my solitude like like the, the French and English divide in Canada, the two solitudes. Right? Now, a monastery of, of 20 solitudes would, would not be a sangha, would it? It would just be 20 solitudes, somehow managing to get the meal out and then run, run away again. And fortunately, we're not that. You know, we have this really, I sense, I sense we have a flourishing group of people. And why is that? Because... You know, we under, I think we, under, we see we see we see this way of relating relating on our, even though it is a retreat is very important it's not just about my solitude and my practice it's about the sun the flourishing so we don't have Syria we're not inclined to that kind of vocation but we have to have something we can, we can give to something we can offer ourselves to so, I'll leave that for reflection. <laughs>